The views and opinions expressed by the following program are those of the host, guests, and callers, and are not necessarily those of this station or Webster Rock Hill Ministries, its management, or other hosts or underwriting sponsors. Programs presented by KWRHLP are for educational and entertainment purposes only. Welcome to St. Louis in Tune. I'm your host, Arnold Stricker, along with co-host Mark Langston. St. Louis in Tune focuses on issues that impact and connect the greater St. Louis area. Our topics include the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, health, history, housing, humor, and justice. Welcome to St. Louis in Tune. I'm your host, Arnold Stricker. One of the things parents, students, and school officials have been highly anticipating is how school is going to begin this fall due to the COVID-19 situation that continues to rear its ugly head. And just when school officials think they have a little handle on how school is going to happen, things change. They are getting information from the CDC, from the state of Missouri, from local officials in St. Louis City, St. Louis County, and the surrounding areas. And it's creating... For some people, consternation as to whether they want to send their students to school, their children to school, and how school officials are going to keep their students safe and their staff safe along the way. Online learning, what is the effectiveness of that? All of these factors play into account. St. Louis in Tune interviewed two school officials, Dr. John Simpson, superintendent of the Webster Grove School District, and executive director Susan Marino, of the Lafayette Preparatory Academy. We're going to listen to both of their interviews and how they have dealt with COVID-19, educating students, keeping staff safe, and giving parents a quality education for their children. We have Dr. John Simpson, superintendent of the Webster Grove School District on the line with us, and he's going to talk with us about how they have managed that and how they were working through that. Now, John, I know that you had a board meeting the other night where you laid out some plans for what you had gotten some research on from the community, and you focused on four areas about healthy environments, healthy students, healthy staff, and healthy learning. I guess to start our conversation, what are some things that the school district learned from the spring semester and how that played out? Yeah, I I would say that we learned a lot. I think um, educators in our district, leaders in our district, just like around the region, uh, worked as hard as they could to um, put together an online program and an academic program um, as fast as they could and also tried to problem solve how do we support uh, kids through the social emotional learning, all the unique unique needs that they have um, electronically, virtually, or, and sometimes over the phone. And um, I think people did a good job, but I think it, it was not um, – close to the level at which we are typically able to do when we're in a a school setting. So um, some of the things that we learned, um, most people really want to be in that, having that live direct instruction with children, um, whether that's face-to-face, but if it's a virtual learning platform, they want to be doing it virtually. Um, And they don't want the recorded messages or just to be given or videos or just be given work to do and completed without that live interaction. Now on the flip side of that, we did have families that the online learning is quite overwhelming um, for them because they're balancing their own 
uh, work lives while they're responsible for helping maybe younger children get on a computer and navigate learning platforms that they're not familiar with themselves. Um, and so how can we support that increased direct instruction with kids, which we're planning to do, but also be respectful of not all families are going to be able to get on for the uh, English language learning block at 9 a.m. So that was something that we learned. Um, also, uh, just how can we better meet the social, emotional learning needs of kids? It was something that we've, we've been mindful of and trying to do well for a long time. It was a particular growth area of mine for our district in the uh, pre, uh, pre-pandemic, but coming out of this pandemic, we've, we, since it started, have seen the effect on, on children and on adults. Um, and as we're thinking about coming back to school, we have to be prepared to um, meet people where they are with those different concerns, worries, wonderings that they have, um, both, again, the children and the adults. Um, we did pretty well with the technology and Wi-Fi, um, but that's a critical component in the, in, the, in, the, in the virtual world. We have to be really good with that. And um and, and also from just how do we how do we support this the just the kids who have the the academic needs and, and the social emotional needs more than the other kids? Um, how do you provide those interventions and support for the kids who, in this environment, the research as some of the research that's been shared with superintendent shows that in that two month two month um, period of virtual learning that it will take a student. Um, six months a fourth grade student six months to be remediated in reading to get up to speed especially considering the summer learning loss and it'll take a sixth grade math student 14 14 months to do so so how are we assessing where kids are coming in and supporting them along the way so those are those are some examples there's more things we learned a lot along the way but we definitely learned overall that we have to be much more effective um, and prepared for kids and we've had the time to do so um, when we start up here in August. Parents are really struggling with the online learning. Some students are really struggling with that, and the social-emotional is, is very critical. You know, you don't want to try to – it's hard to establish relationships via a computer and looking at someone, let alone uh, already having a relationship and continuing that. What are some specifics that the staff is going to be doing differently? Are they going to be trying to – reach out to parents and students via a phone or going out and having a distant visual conversation with them? Or are there other things that are, that you guys have planned? Yeah. One of the things we're going to talk about is one, how to, how to build community. We we're, we're blessed our the way our calendar, um, we had actually structured it pre pandemic was to have six days of professional learning to start the year. And so there we have, we have the opportunity to, uh, support our staffs with the online academic piece that we're using Canvas as a, a management system. Um, one of the things that we're also doing is uh, we are uh, going to use Alive and Well, which is a local group that works with um, different organizations and school districts in support of social emotional learning, trauma informed practices. We're going to become a a learning community, a live and well learning community. So we're going to have school-based teams um, that engage into some pretty intense training prior to start of the year and develop action plans for how they care for people over the course of the year. And then throughout the year, we'll be meeting with facilitators to review how we're doing with those plans and make revisions. 
Um, but yeah, in terms of introductions, what we've talked about is, you know, depending on, you know, you're always kind of waiting to see what might happen with the St. Louis County or possibly the governor's office with what they'll allow us to do. And I know Dr. Page has kind of led us, some of us to believe that he might be um, making the virtual decision for us or making other limitations on St. Louis County. But we've talked about in the virtual environment or if we're in a hybrid, how can we bring people together? Like how can we safely bring people together, especially at the start of the year to get to meet that teacher um, especially with our younger kids. Um, right. uh, and how can we do that in a safe way that makes everybody feel good about it? Um, cause that's really important. So that's one of the things that we're aiming to do. And we've also talked about starting at the elementary, but also thinking at least middle school, how can we make that a regular practice in the virtual environment so that, um, so that there is the face-to-face interaction because we're going if, if if we're able to be in school and we have some element of an in-school plan, there's going to be students that are going to be uh, have their best friends or in a virtual environment where they're coming to school. So, are there any opportunities to have those those student groups come together again safely, likely outside, still wearing masks and such? Um, but also maybe like a weekly interaction with one another or at least with the teacher. So that there's that social piece, so that there's the opportunity to, while we're in a virtual environment, still wanting our kids to interact with physical things, like whether it's library books, whether it's textbooks, whether it's other learning materials, and that could be a time where that exchange occurs. And then we just have to problem solve, you know, those who don't feel comfortable with that or unable to do that. So those are some of the things we're thinking about. Now, at the meeting the other night, you presented uh, three or, or four Uh, different kinds of educational programming that you have uh, scheduled for this fall. Can you briefly describe that? And then an accompanying question that goes with that, are parents going to be choosing which one they want, or will the school district say, hey, this is the model that we're going to choose, and if things get worse, we'll move to this one? Thank you. Uh, yeah, the first the first one, the first model, and this is consistent across the county, is everyone is going to be offering a virtual program for all students, and that's K through 12. And so that will be um, online learning, and we're asking families to commit for at least a semester. Um, that would be taught by uh, Webster Grove School District teachers. Um, there could be a rare exception, such as with a high school course, that we're not able to offer due to for staffing reasons. They, we may uh, use launch or another uh, mocap type provider to provide a special course for students who want that course. But um, so everyone has the choice to submit to be in that virtual program, but they have to commit to at least a semester. Otherwise, if you don't submit to that, we have what's called a responsive learning plan. And the responsive learning plan uh, has three different levels or phases. One is when where we're all in session. Um, two is if we're, we're hybrid, so half the days or two days we're in session face-to-face. Um, the other days we are at home engaging in independent learning. And in that, we would look to have uh, – we would – essentially cut our student body in half and we would have half of them here for two days and then the other half face-to-face for the other two days. And then the other level is we're in virtual learning and that would look very similar to our our other program. Um, 
where we are uh, as a school district and even within levels, I've kind of reserved the right to maybe do something different for different levels um, if we feel we can safely do so sure. will depend on um, different factors related to COVID, um, such as community transmission rates, uh, incidents in our cases in our schools. Um, and one thing that a lot of people are not necessarily mindful of is also um, the effect of the indirect effect of COVID on our staffs. And I'm not talking about if they get it or our students um and that is just are we able to keep our staff in school um if they are because right now like with the staff having to be and, and anybody having if they have symptoms they're supposed to stay home and people have symptoms for a lot of different reasons and if our staff and our students are not coming to school because they're not supposed to and or they're worried, um, that's going to affect have an effect on everybody. <laughs> and so we have to look at those direct that data from the outside, as well as what its effect is on our our staff and our kids. And one of the things that we've been really trying to uh, lobby for, encourage from outside of school districts, uh, including our uh, local health departments, is help with identifying those data metrics, those health profession, those, those health measures that we should be looking at and that we should be using to help determine what level we're in or when is it good to come back in. We could do that. We know the effect that it's going to have on our staff. We can monitor the staffing effect. We can monitor the student effect. But we'd really like some guidance um, from public health experts on that. And at this point, uh, as far as officials, um, county health departments, we haven't been given that help. So. Well, and it sounds like uh, they're going to be extremely busy dealing with possible uh, COVID symptoms yeah. or people identified as COVID when they try to, uh, when is it, like you said, when is it appropriate to go back with staff or with students? Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. the impact of that can be uh, pretty devastating on, on a particular building or on, yes. or on a district. It is. You know, we felt it, we felt it, you know, this year with different staff that have been um, having to quarantine, uh, thankfully, uh, not testing positive, but when they're out of the building, you know, we had one situation I'll just give you is we have one person who had somebody in the home that tested positive. And so they had to remain at home for that reason. And once that person becomes, uh, is no longer symptomatic from that day forward, they have to stay home another 14 days. And while you know, humbly speaking, somebody like me, my administrative staff, they can, they could cover me. They can cover, they could cover the work. But if you're a teacher and have expertise in a content area or subject matter, or, and, and of course, you know, the kids being out for up to 28 days is going to be pretty hard, pretty devastating um, to those kids in the classroom, I would say. And, and teachers would scramble to do their best as with the teacher who's out. Um, and that's even a situation again where a staff member doesn't even have it, you know? Right. So a lot of factors that we have to consider in making these decisions. I don't know if parents, and maybe they do realize there's, there is a tremendous amount of variables that are not controllable. Sometimes mm -hmm. you can, like with a snow day, this is like a snow day on multiple shots of steroids uh, <laughs> that, that are continual. And you always want to make sure people are safe, but you then have to balance things out because there are uh, just extenuating circumstances and the variables. Mm -hmm. Now you're going to be making a 
uh, decision July the 29th on kind of how you're going to proceed, correct? Yeah, we've we've kind of said that's our that's our tentative plan, but yeah, we're still we're still feeling good that we're we'll be able to land by that point. Um, you know, it's just one of those situations where I mean, three weeks ago, I would say it's three weeks ago, people were feeling all feeling much better just with what was happening, what the data was presenting community wide, that they would be able more comfortable with their decision to be back in school or at least partially back in school. And with the recent incidents, people are a little bit more, more reticent, understandably so, but yeah, we still have, have set that date. So unless the, the board changes or we get new information, we're hoping to communicate that because families want to know they need to make plans as well as our staff need to know, are they going to, how are they going to be teaching or how's it going to impact them? And as well as their personal lives, which is big. Now, how has the, the state indicated that funding is going to be impacted? I know there's been a lot of shutdown of businesses, which is going to impact yeah. sales tax, Prop C money, yeah. which goes out to the uh, school districts. What what have they indicated about funding for schools and even with the attendance situation? Yeah, so um, we we've been we've been hit pretty good due to um, the economic downturn. Before um, I think it was sometime in May is when Governor Parsons got all the superintendents on a conference call and kind of told us and you know kind of led us to believe that something a reduction would be coming. And so Webster Grove School District, um, thanks to people like you, where it was in a pretty good spot financially, where we were going to enter our fourth straight year with a above balance a better than balanced budget um but a month less than a month before our board approved a budget um they cut us a little over eight hundred thousand dollars in funding due to what due to what had happened so we entered the school district 2021 automatically with about an eight hundred thousand dollar deficit that we didn't anticipate but we, we we i mean we we knew <laughs> due to what was happening in uh, businesses and industries and stuff like that. It's not that we didn't anticipate it. We just didn't know. And then shortly after that, um, weeks after that, we learned that we would be uh, hit another 800, a, a, a similar amount um, for the 21, 20, or 2021 school year. So, and there's been, you know, promises to pay back or have the money come back if uh, the economy, you know, responds more favorably. Um, if we turn it around quicker, we're not in, we don't budget. We don't anticipate that's going to happen. We're a little bit more worried that we might get um, further hit. Uh, but again, we know I mean, that's kind of how it is. So um, from a budget standpoint, our district thankfully was in a pretty healthy spot with a good uh, fund balance where we can absorb some of that. But, um, but again, we still have to be mindful. So there's, there's positions that we didn't fill. There's just, there's cuts that we have made as a result of that. Um, on the federal level with the CARES Act, um, back uh, when we received stimulus money a few years ago, stimulus money came to us based on our number of students. This time around, it came to us based on our free and reduced lunch population. And I believe the numbers are the last time around, we received about $900,000 federal support this time around um once uh and and that was all towards public school districts this time around we received about 200 but um all but uh about i think it's about eighty thousand of that we had to we had to give distribute to the private schools in our district Mm -hmm. so we're only getting about one hundred and twenty thousand dollars support right 
now this time around and our budget is getting hit a lot harder than it did the last time around um so i, I hope i'm answering your question yeah, and so is the state how's the bit. state <laughs> how's the state handling attendance with with the virtual program and yeah. maybe an yeah. in and out yeah so with the virtual program um the virtual program that's one of those favorable things for so if you're all virtual and a student is shown to be connecting during the week you're able to capture 94 percent of your attendance um which is good as you know you know that's driving your your funding um in the hybrid model your attendance is based on the two days that the kids are there so are the two you know the two days of opportunity so if the kids are there great, you're 100% attendance. If they're not there or there for one of those days, you're at 50% attendance for the whole week. Now, I don't know how that translates across the five days, um, but that is one of those worries because, gosh, 50%, that's really bad. <laughs> and that really hits the pocketbook pretty hard. Or if and, a student uh, has symptoms uh, and they yeah, have to stay home. Right, right, right. And so... You know, are you able to, and that's one of the things we've tried to figure out, um, again, the burden it is on teachers, can they be a part of the classroom and still count the attendance or not, you know, if they're quarantining or symptomatic. So those are some of those really challenging things. And, uh, you know, we're just trying to, what can we do to really help help our teachers in this time with all the things that they're having to do? But again, that's one of those things, too, if you're in person that, you know, I've tried to communicate, you know, um, from a place of care, like we're all about the kids and their safety and we're all about the kids and their learning, but I have a responsibility in my job to the fine, to the finances of the school system and the finances affect the children and their learning and their well being. And that's one of the things about the in-person that if you're not able to meet their needs when the kids are at home, um, and you can't capture that attendance. That's a that's a big thing financially. I, I think we get used to pre-COVID and how things were going, and many families or staff or you know everybody kind of expects things. To, why can't you do this? Why can't you do that? This is yeah. this is an unusual time with an unusual amount of variables. And uh, I really hope people understand that it, it's not just a a blanket decision that uh, schools are making uh, that they're really considering all of these things and there's a, a ton of uh, things that will impact them just not this year but in in future years uh, not only financially but educationally in, in the learning environment what are some closing comments you have for um, people who are listening to this and are uh, really contemplating whether to send their students or really yeah. anticipating like yeah i can't wait for them to go yeah, I would just say I, I appreciate your comments right there. And I think, you know, we had some uh, some Zoom sessions two days ago with staff. We had a medical professional on um, those sessions as well. Last night or yesterday, we did three Zoom sessions with community and then had a face-to-face -face at Moss with masks on. That's our football stadium. And I think just kind of what you said about um, knowing that we're – as educators, you know, that um, whether it's administrators, whether it's teachers, we all want our kids back. Um, we know that we can better care for them and serve them 
um, when they're back. So we don't want to ever come across like what we're able to do when they're not here. Like we can replicate that or it's as good as, but I want people to know that we're working as hard as we can from a place of care that we've always had to meet those academic and those personal and those social emotional needs of kids. Um, and I want people to know that as soon as we're able to, if we're in a place where we feel like we can safely do that, um, then we'll be back to some level. Uh, but we also have to, again, obviously thinking about the physical safety of, of everybody, that's, that's number one. And I think, I think the piece that you just articulated beautifully is that there are so many factors that are going to a decision. Um, and I understand that we've tried to communicate that. Um, but just knowing that, you know, while that there are just a lot of factors that go into the decision making, some that are within our control and some that are not within our control as school systems or as as leaders and educators, too. So those that's what I would say. Dr. John Simpson, superintendent of the Webster Grove School District, we thank you for joining us today on St. Louis in Tune. You stay safe. You too, Arnold. One of the most challenging things that school administrators have to face is an ever-moving target. The health department, local, state, and federal agencies are giving out a variety of information which have to be absorbed and taken into consideration when a decision is made as to what is best for students and staff. Susan Marino, Executive Director of Lafayette Preparatory Academy, provided a lot of examples of how they changed and learned from their spring semester to how they were planning for education in the fall. A lot of it built upon the systems that they had established in the spring and were going to continue and amplify even more in the fall. Let's listen to our discussion. In our spring model, we were learning those systems and kids were learning those systems and we were having to figure out how to get technology to the kids that needed it. And so there was a lot of work in getting that done. Teaching, we transitioned everything to Google Classroom and to Zoom and to another platform called Seesaw. And so a lot of the work was getting people familiar with those platforms and how to use them to be the most effective. So now that we have some of that under our belt and the teachers have done that learning and most of our families have done that learning, uh, of course, we have new, a lot of new families coming in, especially when you think about our youngest students, our kindergartners coming in. Uh, most of our families have familiarity with that, and so we can then build on that knowledge and build a much more robust system in the for the coming school year. When we were in the spring, there was a, a big priority on flexibility and just an understanding of how incredibly hard this was for everybody and how much stress it was creating and anxiety it was creating for all the different groups, for the teachers, for the kids, and for the families. I think now that we have settled a little bit into understanding that these kind of shifts and changes are going to be much longer, that we are building a program that still maintains flexibility and still maintains an understanding of how difficult this is for everybody, but also really does get us back to our mission of providing a really strong quality program whether it's remote or this blended model. So our model is going to include a lot more small group work, um, more actual live streaming of lessons. So, and again, it is it does depend on the age range. It's very different doing virtual learning with a five-year-old than it is doing it with a 12 or 13-year-old. So it does depend on the age group, specifically what the variations are. But I do think our program for the August, or for our August Open, is a much more robust program with a lot more structure and a lot more um, specific instruction that includes flexibility but also is 
bringing in more structure for our families. The task force that you had for parents and staff, the input that you got from them, obviously flexibility, what percentage of staff and what percentage of parents actually participated in in the emails and giving you feedback, et cetera, like that? So the surveys we have done during uh, this whole experience have yielded our highest turnout. Um, I would say our first survey had the least. And then in our next survey, we did a lot of individual reaching out families that had not participated because we wanted to make sure we were capturing participation from uh, our entire community and making sure we were hearing the voices. We are a very diverse community. We're diverse by design, and we wanted to make sure we weren't hearing uh, the parents. And and I love my parents, but there are certain parents you always hear from um, because they come to every PTO and they, you know, email you 12 times a day. And then there are parents who are, you know, generally satisfied with what you're doing and they don't feel the need to come and give their opinion on everything. But we wanted to make sure that even if that wasn't their nature to be a person who is very vocal about their feelings, that they were being heard and their opinions were being captured, even if it wasn't their, uh, their normal MO. So we had really strong turnout, I'd say, starting on those second surveys. Our staff generally have had a really strong turnout. Again, probably starting in the second surveys, we had to get our our groove on how we were going to get our surveys out and make sure we got the greatest participation. But I would say, um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I would say for families, we were in the range of about 75% to participation on our surveys. Staff, uh, I would say even higher, probably closer to 80 Maybe that, 85. That's really good, That's especially with parents. You, you want to hear from them because they're the ones that are going to be impacted, maybe staying at home or you know, trying to arrange some child care arrangements and things like that. With everything going on, with cases going up, what's, what's I'm sure your greatest fear is choosing a plan and then having to change it midstream. But what is your greatest fear going into the school year? Well, I would say that's actually not a fear for me, Arnold. I would say it's a certainty. I am fully anticipating changing the plan mid-year um, in response to whatever is happening out in the world. So for me, that's a certainty, and I think we've worked really hard to communicate with families and staff that that will happen and to prepare for all of the scenarios. My biggest fear, I, I, I don't know that it's even a fear. I mean, I think our number one priority is the safety of kids, and I just want to make sure that what we are doing is maximizing the health and well-being of our kids and our staff so that we can continue to do the good work we want to do. And so for me, it's really trying to find a way to do that uh, most effectively and in response to whatever it is that's happening out there. Now, what kind of guidance has the state provided for you and other schools? That's through the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. I would say most of the state's guidance has been related to operations. We've received guidance on food, uh, which plans we need to submit, finance, attendance. Uh, There was a waiver related to the statewide assessment. Other than that, they have really had schools designing their plans locally and haven't really waited. And MSBA, I think they provided a guideline or a guidebook 
uh, that related to many of the things that I think a lot of the schools have done. Is that something you guys have used in, in part of your development of your plan? Absolutely. I would say it was one of the first and most uh, complete uh, resources that came out very quickly. And it's probably the thing that most guided my initial drafts of the plan because it did uh, it did provide guidance in many different areas. So, yeah, absolutely. That was a, a very strong resource for us. Now, how is attendance going to be impacted how do you take attendance with somebody who's online? What's what's the oh, strategy for that? This is the hardest question. This is the this is the question, you know, again related to fears. And I think a lot of people don't talk about this because it's not necessarily what you think of with a school is there is a fear with relation to finances for schools. Um, we are funded by the students being in their seat. So when a student's at school we calculate their attendance, and based on that attendance percentage, then we are funded, just most simply. I, it's a much more complicated formula than that, but that gives you the basic mindset. So last year, when we closed, they took the attendance rate from before the closure for the full school year and just applied that across the entire school year, even during the closure. So we weren't penalized for the amount of time the kids were not physically in their seats. This year is a lot more complicated because it's possible students will be learning remotely for all or portion of the year. And so it is hard to take attendance, which is tied to our funding mechanism, uh, when they're not here. So there's a couple different scenarios. If a family chooses to learn virtually for the entire year, well, for an entire semester, they could be considered a fully virtual student and the mechanism allows them to earn up to 94% of attendance under something called MOCAP guidance. For families that choose to physically come to school, it gets much more complicated, especially for charter schools and growing schools. Non-charter districts can use the previous year or two as the baseline for their calculation, ensuring that they get funding equal to one of the previous two years. Charter schools cannot. We are seeking an emergency rule, and we do hope that that will be passed because that will make this much more simple. But if it is not, anytime a student who chooses the blended model, not a fully virtual model, but Basically, any time a student chooses to be in our building in any way, shape, or form at any time over the course of the semester, they're part of the blended model. And if they choose that any time they're not in their seat, they're marked absent. And so to kind of play that out, let's say I have the two-day model in the school and I have a student out of school for three days. If the student only comes one of those two days for that week, I only receive 50% of my funding for that week. Wow. Which, right, is, I mean, there isn't a lot to say about that. Now, we've we've asked a lot of questions about that, and we are getting more clarification on it. If they are sent home due to a medically documented need, then they can transition to homebound instruction, and they can be counted as present. The challenge with that is, let's say I send a child home for a fever, which I need to do under the Department of Health guidelines, and I should do, right, because we want to control this virus and we don't want to have people with fevers in settings with a bunch of other people. Let's say I send that child home for a fever and the family says, oh, the child is fine. We're going to monitor them at home. And according to the Department of Health guidelines, that child cannot return for at least 10 days. 
and any of their siblings are also needing to be excluded actually for 14 days. 10 days after the um, symptoms cease is when they could return for the, the child that has the symptom. So again, let's play my scenario out even further. Let's say the child is scheduled to be on site for two days a week. They come the, on the Monday, on the Tuesday, I determine they have a fever, I send them home. They're required under Department of Health guidelines to stay at home for a minimum of 10 days, assuming they, their symptoms go away immediately, as well as their siblings. Now, this is where it gets a little bit tricky, but let's just stay with the single student, not the sibling. So now that student's gone for essentially two weeks, and I'm losing basically two weeks of funding, even if that child is transitioning into learning at home, even if I transition them into my virtual program and they have sustained and continued learning through our virtual program. So this is a, a big threat for especially charter schools funding. Now, if I send more than one child home under that rule, they can be considered in a group. So anything that is two or more children can be considered a group and I can transition them into the category of instruction during quarantine and then that child's attendance will not count either for or against me in the on-site attendance rate that they're going to use to calculate funding. It's all pretty tricky. Um, but I think the challenge is the way that the rules are written, that schools have the potential to be very financially at risk because they're following the Department of Health guidelines to send students home who are exhibiting symptoms of COVID, even if they could continue the learning at home. That really, that's, if you're not paying attention to the details, that could be very financially devastating, like you said. What are some things you want parents and students and staff to get from the conversation? What are some words of encouragement or some final thoughts? Well, I want our students to know how much we miss them and how much we can't wait to have them back learning and in the building if that's possible and how proud of them we are for the progress they made during the closure in the spring and the progress that we know they'll make in the coming year. For my staff, I have the most, I can't, honestly, I don't even know if I can put it in words. I have the most admiration and appreciation for the hard work that they did in the spring they pivoted quickly. They remained committed. They worked so hard because they're so committed to the kids and their work that the reason we did great work was because of the effort that the team at our school made. I am not sure if any other team in the city of St. Louis, state of Missouri, I don't know, maybe even nationally, uh, can pull together like the team at LPA can pull together. They are spectacular, each and every one of them. So unbelievably proud of them. And for my families, I would tell them that I appreciate all the support and the hard work they put into also supporting the remote learning and all the feedback and input they've given us in the process. And just, you know, look forward to working with them again and appreciate their flexibility and their understanding and patience as we have sorted this out and figured out how to best serve kids. We will be playing some comments from St. Louis County Executive Dr. Sam Page about COVID-19 and the effects of that on St. Louis County that he released on Monday, July the 27th. We're all following, like everyone, the rise of COVID-19 infections and it's been tough for everyone. We've lost loved ones. Um, we've lost, some have lost our livelihoods. 
and we've all lost our normal way of life altogether. But together we can get back to normal, but we must stand united, work together, and make the difficult but necessary decisions to limit the spread of COVID-19 in our community. Summer may be here, but fall is rapidly approaching and we've all got our eye on what to expect in the coming school year. So this week, parents are in the process of deciding whether or not they will choose a virtual or an in-classroom option for some schools. And they're all following, like everyone, the rise of COVID-19 infections in our community. And I know they want to have the most recent data available to help them make a decision. So this morning, I want to share the information that we have with you and some of the steps we are taking to flatten the curve in St. Louis County and to try to give parents who wish to choose so the option of an in-classroom learning opportunity at some point this fall. Earlier this year when COVID-19 arrived, few of us owned a mask or knew what social distancing was about. Social distancing wasn't even in our vocabulary. But COVID-19 was spreading quickly. At one point, the cases were doubling every two and a half days. Hospital admissions were rising fast and we were worried about the capacity of our health systems. This time, we're more accustomed to what we can do in our daily lives, how to protect ourselves and our loved ones and our neighbors. And because of these sacrifices we've all made, the cases aren't rising quite as fast as they were back in April, but they're rising too fast. Our rate is increasing, perhaps not as much as other places, but it is increasing at an alarming rate. Yesterday, our daily report of test results indicated that 523 new people in St. Louis County tested positive <clears throat> for COVID-19. And the rate of hospital admissions were rising much higher than we had hoped that they would be at this point. Young people continue to see an increase in new cases. In the 10 to 19 year old age group, the rate is increasing more than anywhere. In the 20 to 29 year old um, age group, we see more cases than ever. Contact tracing, social media, and common sense tell us that one of our challenges is bars and other late night venues where social distancing, mask wearing, and other requirements just aren't being followed. It has been a challenge. So we're making some changes starting this week. Because the virus is not spreading at quite the pace that it was back in April, we're going to take a little bit different approach than we did back then. Because of our contact tracing and case investigation army of over 300, we are now able to identify more outbreaks and follow them more closely. By working with our Department of Public Health, hundreds of businesses have voluntarily, temporarily closed to protect their employees and their patrons during a COVID-19 outbreak. Because of our work with workers, employees, and businesses, they now have guidelines to help protect them and help limit the spread of the virus. And some sectors, like gyms, have worked extraordinarily hard to implement guidelines, and we have not seen uh, nearly the uh, cases associated with those locations. So today I'm announcing seven new initiatives to try and interrupt the pace of the COVID-19 spread in our community. First, we know that this virus is easily transmitted at large gatherings. When this pandemic first began, back in March, we started by limiting gatherings. 
So beginning at 5 p.m. this Friday, we will limit gatherings to no more than 50 people in St. Louis County. We know this will be difficult. We know this will be hard. But together, we're going to work through this, and everyone is going to have to participate in the sacrifice moving forward. We understand how difficult this will be. All pre-approved pre plans for gatherings will be contacted by our Department of Public Health to give guidelines and any specific circumstances. Secondly, we will be rolling back occupancy for all businesses similar to where they were in June. We will roll back the occupancy to 25%. It will help us make easier to maintain social distancing practices and this as well will begin at 5 p.m. on Friday. Our next couple of things will address that the virus is transmitted in places where people congregate, especially close to one another. So our third, our third announcement today is the Department of Public Health will be closing all bars to late night service. This means that bars will close after 10 p.m. each night, and this again starts this Friday. The late night and early morning hours are the times when we see uh, less mask wearing and less social distancing and crowds that simply aren't complying with our social distancing guidelines. We're worried about outbreaks, not just among the patrons, but also among the employees. Fourth, we will be initiating a new graduated process for closing businesses that do not comply with our health rules. If, if uh, businesses are not playing by the rules, then they should not be open. So the Department of Public Health will be finding new ways to work with businesses to make sure they're following the rules and for the safety of the workers and their families and their customers will, when necessary, ask them to close. Our fifth change that we're recommending today is that all people who are waiting for the results of a COVID-19 test will quarantine while they're waiting for the results of that test. We know because of the national uh, delay in getting test results that some people in our community don't get a test result for five or seven days or sometimes longer. During that time, they're interacting with others and able to unknowingly infect others and help spread COVID-19 in our community. We hope that employers will work with employees to make sure that individuals waiting on test results are able to safely quarantine until those results are available. We will also be taking action this week to make sure all health providers are reporting their testing results promptly. The Public Health Department has issued a rapid no notification order to require reporting of test results to the, the County Department of Public Health but that hasn't been happening in all circumstances, especially with some of our urgent care providers. So we'll be following up with them this week. If we can't get those testing results rapidly, then we're not able to quickly uh, contact people who are positive and prevent them from passing COVID on to others. And that's number six. Finally this week, I'm asking my Director of Human Services to help us provide safe places for teachers to quarantine. Teachers, whether virtual or in classroom, are always important, but let's face it, this fall they're going to be on the front lines as well. We need to recognize that and we need to treat them accordingly. Just like many of you have gone out of your way to thank our doctors and our nurses and our grocery workers and our transit drivers, let's thank our teachers as well. And 
we should convey our, convey our gratitude to them accordingly. I'm committing our county government to do whatever we can to help our teachers. We'll have more steps about, more details about each of these steps later this week. Please know that we're trying to take as many steps as possible to flatten the curve and find, uh, provide a safe option for our parents later this year to have an in-school, in-classroom setting for their students if they choose that option. But even with these steps, even with that knowledge, it's my recommendation as a parent that parents who can choose in a virtual option if it's available. And I know that that virtual option will be difficult for many. My son wants to be back in his uh, class this fall. He's a senior and he wants to be with his friends. I understand that. A virtual uh, learning setting is not the same. But I know that in, for some parents, um, a virtual setting creates challenges. Uh, some parents who have childcare needs and some parents who have kids with special needs. They need that support structure and that predictability for their kids to be able to learn. And given the long-standing disparities in our community, we know that many families have unique challenges. And we need to make sure that the county is stepping forward, and it is, to make, uh, make sure we bridge those equity gaps as well. So this is not something that I would ask the community to do if it weren't to protect the health and the welfare of the kids and their parents and their neighbors. It's all at stake. St. Louis County is resilient and we'll get through this as we know how. We'll get through it by working together. So please wear a mask in public and continue to follow our social distancing guidelines. The way we get our kids back into classrooms and get our businesses back to normal is to follow our public health recommendations that we are talking about today. Now these rollbacks and restrictions just apply to St. Louis County. We know that the virus does not know where it is. When we travel to other parts of the region, we can bring the virus back to our homes in our community. When visitors come to our region and our community from other parts of the region, the virus can travel with them. Statewide or regional restrictions would certainly make St. Louis County safer as well. This is Arnold Stricker of St. Louis in Tune, recorded weekly at the studios of KWRH 92.9 FM, the community radio station in Webster Groves, Missouri.